Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. A protest movement in France known as the Gilets Jaunes, or Yellow Vests, has become a political crisis for French President Emmanuel Macron. The protest movement began over a hike in a fuel tax, but has grown into something much, much more than that, and is now threatening to further weaken Macron, who was already deeply unpopular in France. On the line with me to discuss the origins of this movement and its political significance both in France and throughout Europe is Arthur Goldhammer. He is a senior affiliate with the Center for European Studies at Harvard University. He is also a translator of French works into English. If you are one of the many people who read Thomas Piketty's book, Capitalism in the 21st Century, you read Art Goldhammer's translation. Also, in this conversation, I reference a piece he wrote for Foreign Affairs, and I'll post a link to that on the website. We kick off discussing the origins of this protest movement, then have a wider discussion about the roots of Macron's unpopularity in France and the implications of his unpopularity for Europe, the European project, and liberal democracy more broadly. If you have 20 minutes and want to learn the global implications of this Yellow Vest movement in France, then have a listen. And a quick note before we begin, big thank you to everyone who has become a premium subscriber to the podcast on Patreon. I'll post a link to the Patreon page where you can become a premium subscriber. Patreon is basically like a platform that uh, podcasters and other internet content creators use to facilitate interactions between the content creators and the content consumers. It's a way for me to give you rewards for supporting the show. And you can uh, check out what those rewards are by f- clicking the link on globaldispatchespodcast.com or the link in the description field of this podcast. Thank you again to you all who have become premium subscribers. Much appreciated. All right. Now, here is my conversation with Arthur Goldhammer. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, uh, ever since 2008, French drivers have been required to carry a a yellow vest in their cars uh, to be used in emergency situations such as changing a flat tire. Uh, so the yellow vest is a symbol of emergency, and uh, uh, people uh, in the provinces use them to signal the fact that they were living in such dire straits that uh, uh, any addition to their cost of living was perceived by them as an emergency. Uh, it 
to, played the useful role of uh, providing uh, an instant uniform, making participants in the movement recognizable, uh, and beyond that, attractive to television cameras. So whenever there was a gathering of yellow vests at uh, traffic circles, which became one of the preferred uh, uh, tactical uh, uh, choke points for the movement, uh, TV cameras could instantly zero in on them and give the impression that uh, armies were gathering around the country. So, so it gave the, the whole what, movement kind of instant insurrectional feel. So, so what do we know about where this movement started, or better yet, how it started and how it, it evolved to the kind of grand protests we saw in the streets of Paris? Uh, well, it's quite interesting, and social media played a key role, as in uh, many other recent political movements. Uh, a woman, uh, a woman of color, as it happens, who runs a small online uh, cosmetics business uh, from a small town in the provinces of France, uh, posted on Facebook uh, a complaint that gas taxes had risen too high, uh, and it was becoming uh, prohibitive for her to own an automobile. Uh, that tax, that uh, Facebook post was quickly noticed by uh, other Facebook users, uh, in particular by the wife of a truck driver in a nearby town who posted it on her account, and it went viral. So within a few weeks, uh, that uh, original post had gathered 986,000 signatures to a petition and was accumulating more signatures at the rate of about one per minute. Uh, and from there, it moved out into the streets and people began, uh, as I said, gathering at traffic circles and uh, donning these yellow vests, which attracted the attention of the media. And the media attention, of course, caused the movement to mushroom even more rapidly. And I guess, what do we know uh, about who these protesters are? I, I take it from reading in your articles and, and, and other media, it sort of began in sort of the countryside and the provinces and only sort of lately made its way to Paris itself. So, so what do we know about who these protesters are? Um, yes, it's quite true that it began in the provinces, uh, but unfortunately we don't really have a good uh, sociological grip on the composition of the movement. France has known many uh, uprisings, rebellions, and insurrections over the years, but this one is quite different in that it's really unstructured and disorganized. It has no uh, obvious leaders. Uh, there was uh, uh, the woman who posted it on Facebook and the truck driver's wife who picked it up, and that truck driver has subsequently been designated by the media as one of the spokespersons for the movement. Uh, but when spokespeople have tried to, say, meet with the prime minister who issued an invitation uh, to eight uh, uh, chosen representatives of the group, other members of the group protested and said that these were not representative at all. Uh, there have been some attempts by sociologists to push their pet theories and uh, trying to explain the movement. There's a French sociologist, for example, named uh, Christophe Guiry, who published a book uh, some years ago saying that there was a deep fracture between the provinces and, uh, and the larger cities in France. Uh, and he tried to use this movement as uh, proof that he was correct. Uh, but it's really unclear that this is uh, a movement that uh, reflects a, such a deep division. There are some uh, small towns in the provinces that are doing quite well, where high-tech businesses have started, for example. Uh, what does seem clear is that uh, the provincial centers of the movement 
are places where people have to drive uh, longer than normal distances to work. So the use of the automobile was uh, hmm. a key factor, at least in the initial stages of the mobilization. Uh, but since then, the movement has spread to all sorts of places, including uh, cities and even in Paris, there are now uh, pockets of gilets jaunes. Uh, so uh, it can't really be described as a provincial movement. It's something more general than that. And what's more, polls show that uh, from 70 to 80 percent of the French population in general approve of the aims of the Gilets Jaunes. Uh, so it's clearly more than just uh, small town dwellers and, and rural residents. I guess what's interesting and what you pointed out in that foreign affairs piece is that it hasn't been able to be co-opted by either by by a political party by by I know the the far right the Marine Le Pen's party and and the left wing parties have both tried to co-opt the movement but they've been unsuccessful in in doing so. Right. Well, this is not uh, limited to France. Uh, in other countries in Europe, we've seen uh, the decay of mainstream political parties. Italy is perhaps the most prominent case in point, where you have two populist parties uh, with rather different uh, sociological compositions coming together to form a government, uh, uh, a government against nature, as it were, because they're really so different in their complexion. I'm speaking of the Five Star Movement and the uh, League, uh, formerly the Northern League, which really represent different parts of the population. They disposed of uh, the mainstream parties in Italy. In France, you've seen a similar thing happening for years. Uh, there was a widespread perception uh, on which Marine Le Pen capitalized that the two mainstream parties, the Republicans and the Socialists, really had little di difference between them, uh, that uh, they criticized each other when out of power, but when they came into power, they enacted similar programs. Uh, the election of Macron himself was a protest against the mainstream parties, and he uh, notoriously said that he was neither right nor left or uh, at other times, he said he was both right and left uh, and ran against the mainstream parties. So the idea that there are no parties representing the people of France has been in the air for many years. And the Gilets Jaunes have really taken that to heart and refused to be represented even by the opposition parties that have tried to co-opt the movement, uh, as you noted. Uh, it's one of the characteristic facts of this movement that differentiates it from uh, uh, previous uh, revolts in, in France. Well, it also seems that one of the defining characteristics of this movement is a um, is a real animus towards Macron himself, and he seems to be, or he is, just like so deeply and profoundly unpopular. Can can you explain? How or why Macron went from being such this kind of seeming force of of hope and unity to one in which he is just so deeply, deeply unpopular domestically? Uh, yes, well, Macron's election was a bit of a fluke. He was uh, for two years the luckiest man on earth. He had served uh, in uh, a right wing administration. He'd been secretary of a reform commission under President Sarkozy. Uh, and then he was tapped by President Hollande to serve in a left-wing uh, government, uh, where he became uh, first uh, a member of uh, of the staff of the Elysee Palace, serving the president, and then Minister of the Economy. Uh, at uh, some point in 2016, he decided that uh, he was going to leave the government and form a movement of his own. He pretended at first that it was... Uh, 
simply uh, an exploratory movement to see what kind of support he had in the countryside. But uh, few people were deceived. It was clear that he was going to run for president against uh, Francois Hollande, the uh, uh, president who had uh, uh, brought him back from the private sector where he had worked uh, in banking and made quite a lot of money in a few years. Uh, and uh, uh, Hollande and Macron had been quite close. Uh, Hollande described him as his spiritual son. So uh, Macron's departure from the government was seen as a kind of betrayal. Uh, beyond that, Macron represents a, a certain class in France. I'd call it almost a caste. Uh, many of the people at the top of the French government went to just a few elite schools, uh, Sciences Po in Paris, mm -hmm. and then the ENA, the uh, uh, National School of Administration, which trains most of France's top civil servants. Uh, this is a tight-knit group. They have uh, social connections going back to their school days, uh, usually starting in elite high schools, even before they get to uh, these uh, top universities. Uh, and Macron is every inch the Enoch. He really represents this class to the hilt. So he was elected, uh, as I said, by a series of strokes of luck when he uh, left the socialist government. He uh, still faced very stiff opposition, but he uh, found a big hole in the center when the socialists uh, nominated a candidate on their left wing and the Republicans nomina nominated a candidate on their right wing. Uh, and then that right-wing candidate uh, was hit by a scandal, which uh, uh, seriously knocked down his vote. France has a two-round voting system, uh, and because of the scandal, Macron was able to uh, slip by his opposition in the first round and uh, come top among the many candidates who were running with Marine Le Pen in second place. And, and and so, you know, French voters in that second round of election, you know, they didn't necessarily like Macron, but they, you know, didn't appreciate or like the kind of racism and far right xenophobia that uh, Le Pen represented. So Macron was was uh, elected in, in a landslide. Exactly. He uh, won more than 60 percent of the vote, but the turnout was small. And I should add that his uh, vote total on the first in the first round was only about 24 percent which is about where he stands now in approval rating. So his, his uh, support has been stripped to the original hardcore. And, and so that just sort of deeply sort of low base of support, his, his deep unpopularity in France is kind of like surprising to me because, you know, the circles that I run in and around, around the UN, Macron is beloved, right? Like he is uh, the symbol of liberal internationalism. He is a proud champion of the Paris um, of the Paris Accord. You know, I was I was at the the Paris Peace Forum uh, last month, in which you know he kind of positioned himself personally as like the leader of this new liberal world order. I I saw him speak at this Gates Foundation event on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly, in which he gave a a, a really sort of energetic speech about tackling extreme poverty in front of Bill and Melinda Gates. Yet at home he is seemingly despised. And it's sort of that incongruity that uh, is something that I think is important to perhaps impart uh, upon listeners to, to this, uh, this podcast. Uh, yes, and that has been true uh, for quite some time, that he's been uh, much more popular abroad than at home. Uh, I attended a State Department conference uh, last year in which uh, this point was made repeatedly, that Macron's strength abroad 
was uh, not really supported by his uh, strength at home. Now, it should be said that he does have an enthusiastic uh, base at, ho at home. That base has shrunk considerably since the revolt. Uh, but uh, he's really exacerbated the opposition to uh, uh, the elite caste that he represents by making a number of misstatements and insensitive remarks. He told one un unemployed person that uh, it would be easy to find a job. All he would have to do was have enough gumption to cross the street. He told uh, some hecklers in a crowd who were rather shabbily dressed that, uh, and, and made some remarks about this expensive suit he was wearing that uh, they too could have a suit if only they would go out and look for a job. Uh, he called uh, uh, the French uh, Gauls, who were refractory to reform, uh, and, he's a really uh, bad politician. It uh, just sounds like he doesn't have that 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 cut touch of the common person. Let's say he lacks the common touch. And then on top of all that, one of his first moves was to abolish the wealth tax, uh, which uh, mainly hit the top one percent who got a big boost in their incomes. And when you're going to impose austerity on a large part of the population, that's really a silly thing to do as your first move. So you mentioned Italy uh, before, but I'm wondering what your take is on the implications of Macron's, you know, profound unpopularity and perhaps the the Yellow Vest movement more broadly for for the rest of of Europe. I mean, we seem to be in this moment right now of profound instability uh, across the continent. You know, as we're speaking, I haven't checked Twitter in the last ten minutes, but it appears that that May is facing a no confidence vote in the UK. Um, just days uh, ago. There was uh, an election within the Christian Democratic Union, the, the party of Angela Merkel in um, in Germany, and you mentioned Italy earlier. So what does, does both the Yellow Vest movement and also Macron's declining popularity tell you about sort of where Europe might be headed in the coming months and years? Uh, there's no doubt that Macron's faltering is, is really a, a tragedy for Europe. Uh, Macron's election led to hopes that he might lead a European renewal. He uh, was the only French presidential candidate who professed a strong support for the EU. He promised uh, a whole series of reforms and made several very inspiring speeches. He enjoyed strong support from Angela Merkel when he was running uh, for pre the presidency. And it seemed for a time, I wrote myself, that uh, this uh, apparently close relationship between Merkel and Macron uh, would be the best hope for European reform, which has been sorely needed for a number of years, at least since the euro crisis uh, intensified around 2010. Uh, that uh, hope for reform was dashed first by uh, the difficulties that Merkel faced uh, after the recent uh, Bundestag elections in Germany. Her party was seriously weakened. Uh, it suffered further setbacks in regional elections in uh, Bavaria and Hesse in uh, recent months. And uh, in response to those failures, Merkel announced that she was going to resign from uh, party chairmanship while still uh, holding on to her chancellorship. So Merkel was weak. Uh, Macron still looked uh, strong and it was uh, hope remained that uh, this close uh, alliance between Merkel and Macron still might lead to European reform. But that now is almost, that hope is almost certainly dead because of the Yellow Vest revolt. Macron is weak at home. And what's more, to Merkel's opponents in Germany, the fact that he has given in to uh, protests from the street 
means that he is what the, the Germans have always feared most, weak French presidents who cede to violence in the streets and uh, retreat on the austerity measures that Germans think are necessary uh, to put France back on a viable, uh, uh, sustainable budget track. And so, I mean, sort of surveying the landscape, I, I know we have uh, European parliamentary elections in May. I, I mean, how does do, do, do these kind of twin twin issues of, of Mer uh, Merkel stepping down, Merkel being weak, and Macron being extremely weak, um, sort of suggest about the future of the European project and the European Union itself? Uh, well, in most European countries, the European parliamentary elections are a uh, a referendum on the government in place. Uh, people don't feel that uh, the <clears throat> representatives they elect to the European Parliament have much uh, uh, effect on their day-to-day -day lives. So they use those elections as an opportunity to vent their feelings uh, in general. Uh, therefore, Macron is likely to take a real shellacking in these elections. Uh, not only is he unpopular himself, but uh, he, his uh, party, which began as a, a movement designed to uh, further his presidential ambitions, En Marche, he then transformed that into a political party, La République En Marche, uh, which captured the National Assembly, where he still commands an absolute majority. But he's never made any efforts to implant that as a party with a local base. <laughs> uh, so it's going to be very difficult for him to put together a slate of candidates that will garner any public support and people will express their discontent with him by voting against uh, uh, his party. Do you um, fear that just basic principles of, of liberal democracy? I mean, right now we have just Macron and and. Um, Merkel sort of being the standard bearers for a rules-based international order, and both are on their way out, it seems. How how fearful are you, or are you fearful or, or that this order, you know, that they're stepping down might sort of weaken the kind of liberal international order that has been sort of the basis of global security since the end of World War II? Uh, well, I'm very fearful about the consequences for uh, the liberal international order. Uh, that's certainly true. On the other hand, I hesitate to say that uh, this means that democracy is dead. Some would say that it shows the vitality of democracy, uh, that elite top-down rule has been rejected by a movement from the base. Uh, now, I'm not uh, really terribly sanguine about uh, the ability of uh, social movements to uh, rule with any uh, wisdom and foresight. Uh, however, they can uh, serve as uh, uh, a warning to elites that they're on the wrong track, that uh, they're pressing their own desires uh, against the desires of large segments of the population and that they have to adjust their course. So I think the best outcome we can hope for this is that uh, uh, elites will heed the wake-up call and uh, uh, meet some of the demands coming from the base that would be a victory for democracy rather than a defeat. Uh, however, I don't want to sound too optimistic or Pollyanna-ish. I am uh, rather fearful that uh, things will uh, not proceed in a positive direction, uh, as we've seen in the United States. These revolts uh, get out of hand, uh, the wrong people are elected, and the result is not more intelligent policy, but more self-destructive policy. 
All right. Well, Art, on, on that hopeful note, we'll, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, I'm sorry not to be more hopeful, but uh, I do want to be candid. That's, that's, that's all I'm asking for in, in my guests, especially you, Art. Thank you. Okay. My pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. And big thank you to uh, Art Goldhammer. Really appreciated this conversation. I also wanted to let you know that Art actually has uh, written a novel. It's called Shooting War. And I'll post a link to that on globaldispatchespodcast.com. As always, a big thank you to the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute for being an ongoing supporter of this show. If you are with an organization and you want to enter a content partnership with Global Dispatches, uh, just send me a, a note. I'd love to tell you about how our content partnerships and our sponsorships work. All right, we'll see you later. Bye. Bye.